So the value prop that I'm pitching is spend 15 hours as a manager, right? You'll get absolute confidence if they're a successful fit or not. You'll, you'll be forced to make that decision after 90 days, but they won't carry onboarding debt moving forward. The productivity, the retention, all the stats are there that it just makes such a big difference. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Brad Giles. Brad is a business coach based down in Perth in Australia, somewhere where I spent a bit of my formative youth. Just after leaving M&S, I spent a year working down in Perth. Great place, very fond memories of the city and Western Australia. But today we're talking to Brad about his new book, Onboarded, which is a follow-up to his first book, which was Made to Thrive. And in Made to Thrive, he realized that he just touched on a particular topic, which was how do we get new employees to deliver faster? So assuming that you have a robust recruitment process in place and that you are hiring, getting maybe 85% success using something like top grading as a methodology, then why is it that companies still have staff churn, still are disappointed with the impact of new hires? And Brad settled on onboarding. So creating a job scorecard helps you recruit somebody, but then creating a role scorecard helps you get really clear on expectations. So we talk how to do that, how to get clear on expectations and the impact that will have. I think structural reasons lead companies to do onboarding inadequately. And often there's a big gap that remains unmeasured, which is what is the difference between what people should know or you think they know and what they actually know. And onboarding isn't something that should be left to HR. Onboarding is something that should be done by the hiring manager and the team. And so Giles has this concept of onboarding debt. And so how can you calculate the cost of an inadequate onboarding, the cost of your onboarding debt? And then what are you going to do about it? How do you get a return on investment? Do this properly. So a great conversation. We dive into a load of things. We talk about, you know, the sort of managerial fit, managerial expectations, the technical skills that people need to learn, and also the cultural things that people need to pick up on. And Brad's view is that managers need to be spending at least an hour a week with employees to get them up to speed within the point where, say 90 days, if that's a duration period, at 90 days, you can make a really, really firm decision. Is this a keeper? They're an A player for the future and for now, or have we made a mistake? And despite our best efforts on boarding, we'll have to let them go. And so often when I'm having a conversation with clients about, or prospects, just CEOs about people that they've hired recently, so often what I hear is, ah, 
they're not quite right, but I think that might be our fault. And so this is how to avoid that. It's our fault. We think it might be our fault. And to be able to make a really clear decision about we got it right or we got it wrong and do that as early as possible. So fantastic conversation with Brad Giles. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm sure you will too. My name's Brad Giles, and I have recently launched a book called Onboarded, How to Bring New Hires to the Point Where They Are Effective Faster. Why, you might ask, my good man Dom? Well, the reason that I wrote the book is that the greatest source of misery in the workplace today, in my humble opinion, is people who don't understand how to succeed. They don't understand our expectations as leaders. They don't understand the culture, and they don't understand the technical and process expectations of the role or the business. And that misunderstanding is incredibly expensive. And it, it again, is the greatest source of misery. In my first book, I wrote about this issue of misunderstanding in one aspect, and it was so such a big issue. I decided to write a second book on the purely on the topic How do we get people to understand we onboard them well? As you were explaining that second bit, I was about to ask you, and like of all the things you could focus in on, you know, you work as a business coach. And so you see the highs and lows of of businesses and it's a bit niche, right? Like to write a whole book on this. And so you must believe, I guess, that this unlocks, this is a point of leverage for people and it unlocks so much in their businesses that they're seeing the symptoms elsewhere. Mate, everybody has a bad onboarding story. Let's just start with that. Okay. You ask anybody, anybody on the podcast, you probably think, yeah, actually, now that you mention it, there was this one time, and and I say that I've been living in this rabbit hole for a few years of onboarding and what it matters. And like, I'm not a HR professional. Like you said, I'm a business coach. And like much of the industry, I'm coming at it from the entrepreneur's perspective. Like there's a big gap, a big black hole here, and that is people not understanding how to succeed in the role. So yeah, it, it's a really big, it's a really big issue. And the more clarity that I got, I mean, you know, some of the data, I did this big research project as a part of this, this book, surveying 1,100 CEOs and hiring managers around the world the stuff that come out of that, like people just don't do a good job of onboarding and there are structural reasons, but it doesn't need to be this way. I was struck reading the book that on the back of that research, the averages, like the sort of the highs and the lows, even the people who did a great job, there wasn't massive amounts of substance to that. And it wasn't, they weren't taking a long time. And then the the, the other end, it was sort of zero turn up and, you know, you know, there's your laptop or maybe, maybe there's where your desk will be and your laptop's going to be here in two days time. You know, it's no, absolutely nothing, less than nothing in terms of onboarding. And so it, it seems like you're shining a light into a very, very neglected area. Yeah, it certainly feels like that book's been out for a couple of months now and it's just it's it's just resonated really really well with people because they're like you know there's the whole pandemic and the the staff issues that, that we all got at the moment but when we look beyond that it's like yeah we definitely are having a problem and so many stories have come at me oh we hired someone and they quit 2 weeks later 
Okay. Specifically what you said though, I just want to pick up on that is having a computer at your desk, having a business card available to you, or even having a desk is not onboarding. Like that's so simple and basic as a, as an induction to start a role. Like that's, we're talking, how do we get a person to succeed in the role? That's what we're saying based around the premise of a job scorecard or a role scorecard. Well, I love job scorecards. I spent three hours on Zoom yesterday with some clients facilitating their discussion of job score. For me, the fascinating thing about the book was that it solves in a systemic way. If I think about the Gallup Q12, you know, that first question, what's expected of me at work every day? And, you know, I've spent a number of years coaching and, and running businesses before that. And it had never occurred to me that onboarding was the, but, you know, that's, if you get it right there, as you, systemically, you've got it right forever, you know, and start with a few new people rather than trying to boil the ocean and work it out for everybody. So in your world, define job scorecard for people, not job description, I guess. All right. So I'm just going to put my nerd hat on for a moment. If you would bless, grant me that blessing. So I, I keep using the phrase role scorecard as opposed to job scorecard. Now this is full nerd mode. Let's just bear with me for a moment. Job scorecard is for hiring. Role scorecard, in the way that I've advocated in the book, is for onboarding. Okay? Look, you know this stuff pretty tightly, so I can nerd out with you. Job scorecard includes competencies for the role. Okay? So competencies, meaning we're hiring an accountant. One of the competencies, they have a high honesty or something like that. Around the top grading scorecard, there's 50 competencies that we know. And that depending on what adapted version you're using, that that all kind of plugs in. What I'm saying here is that once we've hired the person, hopefully we've got a good person, the role scorecard in its structure is fundamentally similar. Like the, the, the beginning, the purpose is the same. The accountabilities are the same. The measures of success or the KPIs are the same. But then we don't really need the competencies once we've hired the person because we know the competencies that we've got. So then I'm just switching it out to be... This is the, the expectations of the manager or basically how to succeed around the three areas that I mentioned earlier, the, the three primary areas of onboarding being manager's expectations, cultural expectations, technical and process expectations. Let me just clarify that around those three areas, this is what success looks like in the role. So you must be able to be proficient in Salesforce. As an example, if you're the sales manager at this company, it might be one of the managers or technical and process expectations that would be built into the role scorecard. And then the role scorecard is used to build the 90 day onboarding plan. Okay. And so then you say, these are, this, uh, do you have to, you have a test like 90 days in, how do we assess competence? Not so much a test in the way that you've put it, but it's more of a validation, okay? So we would validate against that original job scorecard and then be able to, to, to basically look and tick. But, but remember, the purpose of the 90-day onboarding plan that I call the sprint plan, the purpose of that is to get the person competent or, or able to succeed. So in my experience, having actually rolled it out, I, I've been using this tool in various forms with clients since about 2015. So w what you see is that the focus from the manager on getting them to understand, it's it's like putting the relationship on steroids. The, the A players, the right people, 
really step up and it really it really shines a light and and diverges people one way or the other if they can't succeed in the role it becomes really obvious within 90 days yeah i it's it's interesting because i have conversations in the uk you talk in the book about probation periods i quite often say to clients let's assume we have no probation period right let's assume that because in the uk you've got probation periods and you can you know, dismiss people without cause for up to two years. But really, if it takes too long to work out whether people are successful or not, we're just wasting more time and money. And so we want to know as soon as possible whether the person we've hired is an A player. We assume they are, otherwise we wouldn't have hired them. Assuming assuming our recruitment process is robust, and you mentioned top grading, then we want to know as soon as possible that if we put the resources in, we get to a yes or a no decision. We want to validate that we've hired the right person. Absolutely. I mean, no hiring process can claim to get it right, whatever right means, 100% of the time. And, you know, there's no substitute for the manager validating, yes, this person can succeed in the role. Ultimately, what does succeed mean? They're living the purpose. They have taken ownership of the accountabilities within the scorecard and they're executing the metrics. Sure, we know that they're, I mean, you play in sales, you know, we know that there can be ramp up periods. You don't expect a new salesperson to, to do budget on day one. It might take three months or whatever, but yeah, we're, we're, uh, what we're trying to do, and I'm using the 90-day period. The research that I did, many countries around the world have a 90-day period, but maybe that's not the same. A, seek your own legal advice, and B, this is an example of best practice. It's your job as a listener to figure out how to make best practice work best in your firm. But having said all that, we want to force a decision at the 90-day point, which is successful fit or unsuccessful fit. If you can imagine we're going down a road and there's a fork, we want to force the new hires manager to make that decision at that point. Yes. And I also, I think really one of the things that struck home for me listening to the book was that it's the speed with which people are delivering value in the organization. And you've got some data around, you know, how quickly some people ramped up versus others. And so like the return on investment seems a no-brainer once you look at it from the point of view of, if I think about some of our clients who have got, you know, people who are able to bill, you know, be billable, right? And it's just how quickly could you get them to be generating income, right? Or salespeople, how quickly can you get them selling? But it, whatever the whatever the role is, we've invested the money in the job. We want something back. Yeah. One of the people I interviewed was a guy called Mike Moreau, probably uh, certainly, uh, you know, a friend of the coaching community globally. You may or may not know Mike, absolute champion of a fellow in, in Texas, runs his own business there. And, and he just put it so clearly and succinctly. He said, I just want him to make, start making money as quick as possible. And he had quite a good onboarding process that, you know, I, I took in a lot of things because I did the, the survey and a lot of interviews. And, and basically he said, we know that if we, they commit to 100 days, not 90, that's fine. 100 days, they've got to understand all of our systems and they've got a really a highly systemized process to take them through that and spend time with the manager. And he said, we know we've validated that without that hundred days, it's going to take them nine months to get up to speed. And to that point, as an, a CEO that I work with here in Australia, and she said to me that she'd hired a, a senior manager and, and she said, 
without that onboarding process, the rigor and the the focus that we'd applied, it would have taken nine months to exit that new exec rather than kind of two, two and a half months that it actually took. Ah, so there's two things. We get the billing quicker. And if we've made the wrong decision, we get on to rehire quicker. We do. But, but, but and, and, and that's really important. One of the other people that I, that I interviewed, they said, the most important thing for me is I want to know it's a no and I want to be confident it's a no as quick as possible. If it's going to be a no, I don't want to be left just floating away, you know, just like have the decision floating away. And it, it's, people find it difficult. It's certainly some research I saw in the UK. On average, firms make the right call and right is defined as 12 months after the date they start or the date they've been hired, they're meeting expectations. I mean, not beating, just meeting. They get that right 25% of the time. And then the scary thing is the other 75% of the people that they deem to then be not meeting expectations are still in the business. Yeah. How's that working out for you? Like that's, it's such a, that, that's what I really try to do in this book is to quantify it because onboarding was perceived from an HR-only perspective. Entrepreneurs or, or, or execs in entrepreneurial teams looked at it and they just go, look, we put, like you said before, we, we put the computer out, we get the person on, we give them some, you know, like a new t-shirt and then a coffee cup and we're all good. What are you complaining about? And so they kind of looked at it like that. But the body of research, both what I've done, but much more extensively with much more sophisticated firms, was very clear that the costs are outrageous. And and we've got to look at the hard dollar costs. I didn't want to just write a soft book, you know, trying to make you feel nice and fluffy. It, it, it's like, this is a real and hard cost. And so I focused on the cultural cost, first of all, which we can quantify, A, but more importantly, for those who don't believe what I just said, then there's the hard dollar costs that you're alluding to there. So dig into some of these cultural costs for me, because the, the thing that's bounced into my head as we were talking there a little bit about getting an exit quickly is that, of course, you've hired somebody into the business and their colleagues are going very quickly, you know, within a couple of weeks, their colleagues are going, they've cut, they've hired the wrong person here. And trust in the company, the firm's ability to hire a player can erode quickly. And if you, you know, if you then take three, six, nine months to exit that person, it's like, what took you so long? You know, we knew on week three, this person was rubbish or not a fit or didn't have the right attitude or wasn't a cultural fit. But what are some of the other cultural costs of onboarding incorrectly and getting it wrong? Point that that closes out what you just said before I answer the question is that the problem with that is that people think that you just don't care. You're in action around someone. We knew after three weeks, why did it take you nine months? That's all fine and well. So therefore you wear the cost as the employer. But the problem is, is that the other people in the business think that you just don't care. And then the second part of that is, so why should I care? And that's a real tangible. So I talk about this issue of onboarding debt. So you've heard of sleep debt, I'm sure. If you don't get enough sleep in a night, it's probably, you're just going to be a bit grumpy. Over a few nights, probably going to still just be a bit grumpy, no real problems. But then if you don't get enough sleep over weeks, months, even years, it can have major health consequences on the body. Oh, if you deprive people of sleep, it kills them faster than depriving them of food. Yeah. And, and so sleep debt is a well-established principle that most people listening would be aware of. So the concept of onboarding debt is 
if you bring someone in as a new hire and they should understand after 90 days what's reasonably documented on a role scorecard, and that's the job of the onboarding process is to get them to, to successfully understand that, to be a successful fit. Well, without that process that I've described, if they just join and they start on the first day, how much do they actually understand given, okay, so you had a meeting on the first day, you met them during the interview process, maybe they've been in a few meetings, but it wasn't a real focused and targeted approach. Well, maybe they understand 30, 40, 50, 60, 70%, whatever it is of how to succeed in the role. But the stuff that they don't understand, that absence or misunderstanding, that's that's at what I call an onboarding debt. So then you begin to multiply that across the business. So you've got one person and they understand, let's say 65%. So you give them, you, you at the end of 90 days, without an onboarding process, let's say, you rate them. Manager's expectations, I'll give them six and a half. Technical understanding, I'll give them six and a half. Cultural, I'll give them six and a half. Let's just say, why? Because it's easy maths for me to do, to give it 65%. So that means that they've got 35% of the things in how to succeed in the role that they don't understand. So then we've got this, this absence of understanding, but then you think about that in terms of one person and then that person equally interacts with other people. So if you've got a person who doesn't understand 35%, and then there's another person who doesn't understand 20 or 40% or whatever it is, this onboarding debt comes at a cost across the whole, the whole business in terms of mistakes, rework, people not being aligned, and the, the soft side of things is obvious. I've got a thing. I call it the Doctor Who moment. As you were talking, I'm thinking of these sort of concentric circles. And so I'll be in a company and we'll be in a session with the CEO and the CEO will confidently say that there is a process or a procedure that they believe is in place in their business. And the rest of the team will look at him like he's mad, like he's just made it up. And I refer to those as that CEO is having a Doctor Who moment. It's like somebody's time traveled back and wiped the memories of the people. And then he's the only one that remembers. And in his mind, he's, the problem is solved. And then it's like, well, what, hang on, we, we wrote this process two years ago. Uh, hang on, let me see if I can find this document. And they just have got no, because when you, I, so I'm, I suppose the question that this leads me to is, because if you're like, you know, that whole, I hire an A player, there's three or four of us, we chuck somebody in a corner with a desk and a laptop. That was good enough for us. It's good enough for them. In a really small team, that even just spending 90 days or 100 days with people through osmosis, you probably have enough interaction and people get by. It's, it's when it gets to the 12th person, the 15th person, if you don't start to organize it, then it never becomes a thing. And, and then you get, you get to that. I'm now third generation. You know, I got some proper training on this tool. I passed some of that on to them. I, they passed some, there's no documentation. Like you can actually see in organizations that, you know, people end up using one small, I mean, you see it with, you see it with people with like Microsoft tools, right? You know, I did a thing the other day. I did control A in front of somebody and they went, what was that? I, I said, that's just control A. That's just like select all. And they went, show me that again. And it's like, you've never been shown how to use Microsoft Word. You've been holding and clicking and dragging and man, you've wasted hours of your life because nobody's shown you how to use this tool. And I, that's, you know, sometimes you use an arcane, you know, something like, I don't know, 
something in Excel, pivot tables, and people go, what did you do? And I can understand that they didn't get that. But so much of our lives is that, and small businesses are rubbish at process documentation. They just don't do it at all. So what do people have to do? Where, where, where do you think there's a, let's start now? And who owns it? Like, who does this work? What roles are needed in a business to change a business from being really rubbish at onboarding to having a robust process? Well, at which level are you no longer prepared to accept the cost of misunderstanding? You know, it, it plays out across retention, productivity. You, you know, it, I, I, I can't help but say one person. And, and in my lived experience, I have hired a few people in the last year and they have all been through the full onboarding process and the ramp up was massively improved. The time to productivity, the understanding and l- lack of misunderstanding. So I take your point, but kind of mis- disagree a little bit. I think that if you're hiring someone, you need to help them to understand how to succeed. And if you don't, because we can survive through osmosis, I'm sure you can. There's a very large mining company in the town where I live. I won't say what the company's name is, but let's just say it's got three letters and it starts with B. And I, as I was talking to someone at an event and they've been hired by this company and they're like, I don't know who my manager is. I don't know what my job is. I've got no idea. And I've been working here for like a month. And they're like, I've got no idea at all. So if someone inside that company decided that it wasn't worthy of effort to get someone to understand. So I think it's, it's more about, are you prepared to invest in paying the price of not doing the work? But that really comes back to what was the, the tail end of your question, which is what's the work? My, what I'm advocating is number one to your second part of the question there is absolutely unequivocally that the manager owns onboarding. If you're giving it off to HR or the people department, it's not onboarding. That's induction, right? It's a completely separate process. Happy to dig into the definitions if you like. But the manager owns onboarding, right? Because if you start a new job, imagine Dom went to go and work at company X, you want to interact with your manager. You want to understand how to succeed. You don't want to go through a week's worth of uh, watching videos and clicking buttons to try to understand in a little dark room. You want to interact with your manager. You want to get that learning directly where they're saying, this is what you must do. This is how you succeed here. So to close that out, what I'm advocating is two hours, first of all, to prepare the job scorecard. You said you spent time I think in the last few days with the customer. Yeah, yeah. We were looking at the executive team, I guess in your definition, role scorecards yeah. of an executive team for a client. So two hours is not unreasonable to build a job scorecard or a role scorecard, right? To get it right, to make sure. Okay, so that's the first part. And then across 13 weeks, e.g. 90 days, one hour per week, dedicated one-on-one meeting between the new hire and the new hire's manager equals 15 hours approximately. So the value prop that I'm pitching is spend 15 hours as a manager, right? You'll get absolute confidence if they're a successful fit or not. You'll you'll be forced to make that decision after 90 days, but they won't carry onboarding debt moving forward. The productivity, the retention, all the stats are there that it just makes such a big difference. And on the cultural side, 
What's the framework that you're using with clients so that people know the cultural expectations? Well, I'll define the, the other two. So manager's expectations, as your manager, I know that you can't succeed here unless. Example might be something like, if a client cancels a meeting, you've got to rebook it immediately. Like just something little like that, but that is that manager's lived experience. So there's, there's lots of little things that are between the cracks as to how to succeed here from the manager's expectations. Or, yeah, if you can't get me the, the monthly reports by the 4th, like I need you to work back so you can get it to me on AM of the 5th. There's little things like that that are all woven around technical and process. Look, this is also about unlearning what you've learned. Look, I know that you use Salesforce this way at that company, but we do it this way. And this is why we do it that way. And, and then in terms of cultural, specifically around core values and behaviors, let's say that you've got five core values and let's say that you've got three to five behaviors. And I'll just give a quick definition on how I interpret those. Everybody kind of knows, I think, what core values are. That's that's who we are. It's the broad stuff like, you know, all of the core value statements like get it done or, you know, we, we act with speed, whatever it might be. Core values can be difficult for managers to hold people accountable to. It's very hard to sit in a meeting room and fire someone when against the core value of get it done because you didn't get the report done. It's It's more qualitative than it is quantitative. So what I'm advocating is that Underneath core values, we've got specific behaviors, which are, we always do this and we never do that. We always do that and we never do this. So very, very binary statements underneath the core values. And then to go back to your original question, if we've got the core values and the behaviors, maybe we've got, again, five core values and let's say three for each, three behaviors or for simplicity, I'll say five behaviors for each. So five values, five behaviors, I'll get there eventually. What we've then got is a, a number of stories that we can generate as leaders that are reusable because not everything in an onboarding plan is reusable, is tailored to the individual or the role. But then we can say, okay, so our core value number two is this and his story around core value number two and his story about the first behavior within core value number two. So understanding the values and behaviors and to a lesser degree or, or to a slightly different degree, the purpose, and then translating that. That's the first bit of telling you, okay, so tell me about something great that you saw someone do or you someone heard and which value do you think that connects with that kind of interaction? Okay. That's really helpful. I think those stories can be really, really powerful. And I know one of my clients is in Australia, in Sydney, on Macquarie Telecom Group, and they've got this amazing story that they tell, which is that they tell, you know, new hires to give them a sense of expectation and lateral sort of authority, if you like. And they tell this story of somebody ringing up the support center and saying, look, this guy rings up and says, look, my wife's on her way to the airport. And I, I just know she hasn't enabled global roaming. And I know she won't be able to turn it on when she gets there. Can you help me? And the young lady on the desk says, not a problem. Where's she flying from? Obviously a pre-COVID story. Where's she flying from? Where's she going to? What's her gate number? What's she called? Gets a phone out the drawer. It's charged up, puts in a SIM card, gets in a taxi, goes to the airport in Sydney, pages the lady, meets up with her, says, your husband rang. Here's a phone you can use while you're abroad. And then the kicker is, this customer is not even a customer of Macquarie's mobile phone service. But he knew, he knew that Macquarie were likely to help if they could, and his, his mobile phone supplier wouldn't. So he rang them and they helped. 
And so then the story is, here's the thing. Don't go, are you a customer? Because computer says no. Go, you are a customer of something. Can I help? Yes. If it's in my power, I have the authority to do this without a recourse to my manager. I just have to make it happen. And then we'll tell a story and these stories will be celebrated. And they, they've actually hired a chief storyteller. So every week, managers email in stories from the front line. They get consolidated into a board pack each month. And from that, some of those stories get articulated in a way that they're fed back to the business as more myths and legends to retell. And I just think they just do such a lovely job of that. I love that. Think in the context of onboarding that there's a new hire in a little cubicle who's been given a laptop and it's got a PowerPoint presentation and they're reading that story on a laptop compared to they're being told that story with all of the the vigor that you just told it and the nuance and that's why that's an example of why we want the manager to own the onboarding experience because the thing is people will have questions they'll be comparing and contrasting their own experience which is i'm allowed to do that are you sure you're not kidding me did they is this really true like they'll want to sort of knock the rough edges off it so if you just watch it on a computer you still got all those questions they're unresolved unless you've had that conversation with your manager yeah there's a place for processes in in onboarding and hiring and induction to be automated but people want to connect with their manager they want to build a human bond with their manager uh, that's what the new hires tell people and we know that that's what we need to deliver on if we fail on that there's a direct connection to attrition fab brad what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier i think that it's a journey life is a journey i i don't know if this is meant to be a business or a personal question but i'm wrapping it up into both it's that you know life it's a journey and there's in business as entrepreneurs we can be unbelievably focused on goals and trying to achieve that goal. And once we get to X million or once we get to this point, but it's just not about that. It's about the journey. And I've looked into people who were retired, spoken to a few, but moreover, just what, what are the people saying? This very successful business people after they've retired and, you know, they're, they're saying it was the journey. It was when I was 20 and 25 and 30. And what was I doing then? So I think, so what, when you get to 10 million or a hundred million or you sell or you get a plane or whatever it is that's on your bucket list, you look at the people who are, who have exited their business, sold it, and then they get this idea to go and play golf. So they do. And then they realize that there's no life in that. What do they want? They want that hunger and that, that vitality and that life that they had when they were scrappy and working hard and fighting. And that's the journey. So I think it's the journey. Okay. And as well as onboarded, available from all good booksellers, what other inspiration should people seek? Where should they go to solve some of these challenges they have in life on the journey? I got two just because I'm a rule break. So the first is actually a movie. Okay. The first is a movie called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. J-I-R-O Dreams of Sushi. It's available on YouTube, I believe. This chap, Jiro Ono, is an 85-year-old sushi cook, sushi chef, who started I'm going to get the date slightly wrong, but you'll take the principle and, and correct me when you watch the movie. He started his restaurant 
in a it's it's in a Tokyo subway station. You walk into the subway, you've got the McDonald's or the Burger King or whatever it is all through there, and then you've got this little Japanese sushi restaurant inside the Tokyo station. Well, this guy is the essence of mastery. If you've ever contemplated the meaning, this guy is a Michelin star chef operating in a subway station in Tokyo. Okay. And the dedication to mastery is unfathomable until you watch it. For example, again, I'll get these numbers slightly wrong, but if you join as a chef, you'd think that you join a restaurant as a chef, you're going to get a four-year apprenticeship and you'll come out and you'll be all good. Not at this place. They, they put you through something like 10 years of cooking rice, just cooking rice. And then once you've figured out how to cook rice, then they put you into like another 10 years of, you know, the seaweed that they wrap it up, the, the, the sushi rolls. Then they'll put you on like another eight or 10 years just working on that part. And then another eight years. And they've got these people, they're like 50, 60 years old. And they're like, yeah, so now I've just graduated onto cutting up the fish. How long have you been doing it? Oh, like 35 years. Okay. And as an entrepreneur or someone who thinks about mastery, like it is just the most amazing movie. So Jiro, J-I-R-O, Dreams of Sushi. I absolutely loved it. Again, it's something different, but yeah. Second one, very quickly, a book called Small Giants by Bo Burlingham. I'm sure you would have read it in your dom, but Bo Burlingham was the editor at large for Fortune magazine. Way back when, before Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, before Great Game of Business, and he was looking at all of these big and successful companies, thinking that the only path was to scale, 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 scale. But then he realized that there were these small giants, companies from, let's say, 5 million to 150 million, that had built an amazing and incredible business, but were doing exactly what they wanted and had the most engaged, happy, and loyal employees. I don't know if you've read that one, Dom, Small Giants. I did a while ago, but some of the joy of these podcasts is getting recommendations. So now I've got a movie and I'll go and dig that out of my Audible library and re re-listen. I mean, you do coaching, right? Here's the thing. I do. As do I. Sometimes you get in a situation with an entrepreneur and it's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go left or right? Do you want to, do you want to scale or so I, at that moment, I'll say, read this book, Small Giants. Is it your heart's desire to build a small giant or not? Because that's not necessarily as much about revenue. Or is it that you want to keep going along that path? And it can be very useful at that point. Brad, that's magic. Thank you very much indeed for your time today to talk about Onboarded and to give us these recommendations. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Well, it is my pleasure as well. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat, Dom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.